The Water Values Podcast, Session 65. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. We've got a great show for you today and before we get to it, I just want to say thank you to Rosemarie56 for the five-star rating and a glowing review on iTunes for the Water Values Podcast. Thanks so much, Rosemarie56. Also, if you haven't taken the listener survey that's linked on the watervalues.com website, please do so. We've had a lot of great feedback, but I know there's more out there too. So please help me out and take just a minute of your time to complete that survey. Well, on to the interview with Shazin or Shaz Atari. Shaz is an assistant professor at Indiana University's School of Public and Environmental Affairs, and she's doing research into the psychology surrounding water use and water conservation. Our conversation today will be a journey in understanding how and why we act the way we do when it comes to water. Shaz explains uh, where we've been in understanding water psychology and where the research is headed, and she provides a very interesting perspective on water that decision makers with water agencies, utilities, and other providers should take into account when communicating and conveying messages about water to their customers and and constituents. So with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves. Fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Shaz, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Uh, Shaz, to start off, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in water? So I actually grew up in the Middle East, um, in Dubai, where water is quite a large problem there. Most of the water comes from desalination. And when I came to the States for my undergraduate education, and I was in physics and math, and then I switched over to engineering, and now I'm in psychology, where I sort of uh, work on the relationship between human behavior and resource use in general. So for the past couple of years, I've been working primarily primarily on energy, and uh, more recently, since I moved to Indiana, I've started working on water issues. Okay, and and how how did that that interest in working on the water issues get going? Yeah, great question. Um, So when I moved to Indiana, which was in late uh, 2011, it was right before the drought that hit Indiana in 2012. And that's what started started the whole thought process of, you know, how do people really think about water? How do people think about water systems? Um, If we really needed to conserve uh, conserve energy and water, what are the sort of differences and similarities between energy and water? So really, the move to Indiana um, started the, the thought process of, all right, we, you know, we really need to start looking at water because that's when uh, we had a pretty bad drought here. Yeah, I, I, I actually remember that. I remember I had I uh, was working in Indiana at the time, and I had clients, you know, and, and dealing with uh, what type of usage restrictions utilities were going to impose, and then the the problem of of consecutive systems and how do you get that last system to start requiring uh, usage restrictions and curtailments on their customers. Uh, so the, I, I get that the 2012 drought was a big impetus for, for looking at water issues in Indiana in particular, and I'm sure uh, elsewhere in the Midwest. Uh, in terms of the behavioral science and water consumption, where where are we with respect to where the science is on that? 
So actually, we made the switch over from uh, energy to water and trying to, trying to use very similar methods that I, was getting, that I used to understand how people think about energy in water. And I was very surprised to find that um, the psychology of water, water use, is actually far behind that of energy. So, so let me give you one example, just in terms of just data availability. So Peter Mayer et al., who's actually in, Col in Colorado, uh, has a 1999 study that looked at residential water use across the United States. And we are still using that work today to try to understand how do Americans use water inside and outside their home. So water in general tends to be understudied in comparison to um, electricity. And so for me, what I wanted to do is use very similar methods to, to compare across resources. How, what are the differences and similarities in the way people understand these really vital um, daily resources that we rely on you know, every single moment of every single day? So in terms of uh, what your thoughts are and why water is so far behind energy, what do you think is the cause of that? It's a really good question. Um, I think part of it is just it's been, I mean, every time I open the tap, there's water for me to use in general. So I think we've sort of uh, taken this uh, resource for granted for a really long period of time. And I can't even imagine the last time uh, in the United States that I was without water. And I think that is slowly starting to change, given what's happening in California, given the recent uh, water quality contamination uh, events that are happening in West Virginia, Lake Erie. So I think that water is starting to become more salient to people in terms of the psychology of water use, what are, you know, the, the psychology of how much water really goes into our foods. I think all of that is actually making, um, it's actually rising to the surface. But I think historically, we really haven't had to deal with that with these issues in the, in the recent past until, like, now. So I think that might be one issue. And also, you know, every time we've needed water, we open the tap and it's there. So it's, I think it, we've just sort of taken it for granted, in, in my opinion. Sure. And I, I also, I think you're exactly spot on there. In addition, I, I'd also say that the price of water hasn't reached the point where people are you know, thinking that it's really going to be painful to use additional water and so they, they just don't really think about it because their water bill is relatively inexpensive in relation to their cable bill and their electric bill and a lot of the other utility bills that we're getting. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, in terms of, uh, if we can move on beyond that, why, what's your research or what is what have you found why people don't conserve water or are not conserving as much water as they think they are? Sure. So in general, in the United States, we're roughly using 100 gallons per person per day. That's quite a lot more than what we actually need for just basic floor survival amount. And so Peter Gleck, who's a, this, this wonderful water expert out of, out of California, he actually did a back-of-the-envelope calculation saying that you know we really need roughly 13 to 14 gallons per person per day when it just comes to basic, absolute basic requirements. So we're a lot, we consume a lot more. So when I, when I started off this first study that was published last year um, in the Proceedings of National Academies of Sciences, 
it basically looked at, you know, if you were to ask people, um, my participants, what is the single most effective thing you can do to decrease your water use? What would people say? Are people accurate? Um, when you were to ask people, you know, for the different uh, activities inside the house, outside the house, how much water do these different activities use? What does accuracy look like in comparison to how much water is actually being used by these activities? And then what are the factors that predict accuracy? So that was the first piece of, of the puzzle that I started looking at. And what we found was really surprising. What we found initially was that people in general tend to focus on curtailment actions, which are basically doing the same behavior but less of it, as opposed to efficiency actions, which is switching technologies. So an example of a curtailment action is taking a shorter shower. An example of an efficiency action is you know, replacing your standard flush toilet with a low flush toilet. What was also surprising is that toil people don't think about toilets when they think about water use. And based on um, Peter Mayer's uh, work in 1999, toilets actually use the most amount of water in the home. And so lots of really surprising findings about where people think they can save the most amount of water and where we actually use water. Then in general, people tend to underestimate the amount of water used by a variety of activities, especially as the activities start using a lot more water. So when we, when we think about, you know, a gallon or 10, 15 gallons, we get it really correct. But as you start thinking about 100 gallons, 1,000 gallons, underestimation starts uh, to occur. And that's primarily caused by this phenomenon in psychology, which is anchoring and insufficient adjustment. So what that means is, is that people tend to anchor on the one gallon or in terms of what they understand, and they're, in, they're insufficiently adjusting their higher estimates to that one anchor, to, the, to that one gallon reference point. And finally, what's really interesting is that perceptions of energy and perceptions of water are really different. Can you expand on that last point? The, how are the perceptions of water and energy different? Sure. So if you think about perceptions of energy, the, um, people, uh, people in general tend to underestimate energy use much more severely than water use. So if you were to think about um, by how much, on, in, on average, uh, water use is underestimated by a factor of two, whereas um, energy might be, or electricity is underestimated by a factor of roughly three. So that's the first surprise finding. Also, the, 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 uh, over a much larger range of activities, people seem to understand more accurately how much water is being used by the different activities as opposed to energy. And to me, on a sort of a gut level, on an intuitive level, that makes sense. So when it comes to water, we really interact with water in, its, in terms of its direct end use, right? So we see the water in terms of our shower, when we open the faucet, when we flush our toilet. Whereas with energy, we're sort of interacting with uh, um, energy in terms of its end use, so heating, lighting, cooling. So it's really hard for us to sort of make these uh, quantitative estimates for these different end uses when it comes to electricity in comparison to water. So water is much more easy to understand in comparison to electricity, and that's what my work shows. I, th I think that's an excellent point. And one of the other things you said is really interesting as well is that toilets use most of the household water, and the fact that an appliance, for lack of a better term, that does not even need potable water is such a big water hog. That's a big point. And, of course, we're talking about indoor use here. We're not talking about outdoor irrigation. Uh, but that's but that's such a big, you know, both curtailment and efficiency improvement we can make. Um, 
to help take on and contribute to reducing uh, potable water consumption in our homes. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that actually brings up a really good point because we're actually spending a lot of energy and money treating this water that we're just flushing down the roof. And are there, I mean, and there are ways that we can avoid that. So we have a new paper coming out in the Journal of Environmental Psychology, which is entitled Don't Rush to Flush. And basically we looked at how do you, what are the different barriers, psychological barriers that exist that prevent people from flushing less? So if you were to just to decrease the amount of, amount of times you flush in a day by you know, 25%, that would actually save quite a large amount of, quite a large volume of water. So what are the different barriers? And one of the barriers is disgust. So, you know, we just, if it's, if it's, if, if we see it, we just don't, we feel the sort of immediate disgust reaction and that's really problematic because people just don't want to see it. And uh, so that's that's sort of one big finding from that paper as well. Hmm. Going back to an earlier point you made as well, the, the fact that we, we understand water better than we do energy, but yet the, the water, the work in behavioral science is far behind that of, of energy. Is it, is it possible that that there's just this baseline assumption that, hey, because we interact with water so frequently, uh, we we naturally or intuitively understand it better. And that is that could that be another reason why the the science is a little lagging behind uh, energy science? I think that could be one reason, but I think it, another reason is really the we've not had severe problems. In, the, in the, you know, we, in terms of severity of problems, it's really starting to hit the fan now. And so there are a, a lot of behavioral scientists that are actively working on water right now. So Paul Rosen, Paul Slovic, and others recently had a paper in Judgment and, uh, judgment and Decision Making looking at why is it that people have this inherent disgust when it comes to recycled water or, or water reuse. And so, the, so they basically investigated, you know, why is it that people are so vehemently against uh, drinking this water, which has gone through pretty extensive treatment. And so there are a variety of experts looking at that right now, but I think just historically it's been an, uh, an, understudied, um, uh, an understudied area of research, and that's also uh, sort of mirrored by the availability of actual data. I mean, the fact that we're still using 1999 data when it comes to actual water use in the home, you know, says a lot. Yeah, I I I would agree with you. Um, you know, utilities are they are seeing declining revenues because of lowered water usage and and in rate setting that's problematic because if you're going to sell less in the in a future period, you need to collect more revenue. Mm -hmm. And so, has has there been any work with the utility sector to to pinpoint why and and what are the sources of you know, declined water use in the home and, and, you know, kind of partnering with them on data gathering? Because I, I know they're out there gathering, gathering data on usage and things of that nature. So there is actually a lot of work on that, but I'm not as familiar with that work as I am with the psychology literature. And so there is, um, I recently attended a, um, a, wa um, a water roundtable where uh, uh, participants included multiple utilities, researchers, 
and this actually took place in um, Arizona at the decision making, uh, sorry, the decision center for a desert city, and I might have gotten that name wrong, but that's it's called DCDC, and sort of folks there are actually studying how how do you sort of make it less of a hit when it comes to revenue? Um, that, uh, make, how do you make it less of a hit when it comes to utilities maintaining the revenue while encouraging conservation and curtailment in actions, curtailment in water use behaviors? But that's not an area of active research for me. Okay. Um, and you mentioned the, the difference between curtailment and efficiency. Uh, what goes into... Uh, distinguishing, you know, whether someone is more of a curtailer or more of an efficiency-minded person? So that's something we would like to study in our lab, but we haven't had a chance to as yet. But what we find is for both energy and water, people tend uh, to think of curtailment when they're asked, what is the single most effective thing you can do? Uh, however, if you were to re-ask that question, what is the single most effective thing other Americans can do? We have an increase in efficiency actions. And the thing is, you know, when you think about efficiency versus curtailment, curtailment is basically not does not necessarily require an upfront investment in terms of money. So I don't need to go out there and put in a new technology in my home. I can sort of just try to augment my behavior. And you might have an optimistic bias about how far we can actually be vigilant about changing our behavior and making sure we maintain that behavior over a long period of time. And so that is one reason why some experts recommend efficiency rather than curtailment, because you can leave your behavior the same, but you have a technology switch, and that leads to significant reductions in resource use. But that's not what we find in the way people think about resource use. So people really think that you know curtailment for them is the most effective thing that they can do. Hmm. Uh, and what about the demo- demographic breakdown? You know who, what what segments of the population understand water the best versus the least? So for both energy and water, we find participants who are numerous. So that's people who really understand quantitative numbers do a lot better, and that's actually not that surprising because we're really asking for estimates for watt hours and estimates for gallons of water used. So these are quantitative. I mean, these are numerical estimates. So people who are numerous do a lot better. For water, surprisingly, people who are older and participants who are male actually had more accurate perceptions of water use, which was a huge surprise finding for me, because that's not what we found for energy. So the mm. question then is, 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 why is it that you know uh, older participants and men are more accurate when it comes to water use? I'm not quite sure. Huh. So I assume you're, there's more uh, research going into figuring out what exactly... Uh, is causing those discrepancies. Absolutely. So in, actually, as we speak, we're working on a paper that looks at how do people really understand the entire drinking water system. So we had roughly 600 um, students uh, draw out what they thought the entire drinking water system looks like, and the results are very surprising, but you're going to have to wait wait, wait for, <laughs> for, for the work to get published. Yeah. Terrific. Well, when, uh, when will that work be published? I'm not sure. We're still working on writing up the results, but um, a lot. What's really surprising to me is that some people think that you know um, magic happens and water <laughs> sort of arrives arrives at the tap, and some people have really beautiful and intricate um, and accurate understanding understandings of the, the entire drinking water system. So in this work, we're actually looking at 
what are the prevailing misperceptions and who ha who has these who which parts of our audience really have these prevailing misperceptions about the entire drinking water system and so i think this is also the first time the entire drinking water system has sort of been put to task in terms of how do people understand it because some parts of our uh, of our water system as you know are unseen to the eye you know things like pipes it's actually true that not many people will go and take um, you know a tour of the wastewater treatment plant so it's to, for a lot of people this is really a magical thing that happens and so trying to understand how do people think about this system might actually lead to uh, understanding how do you get people to uh, really accept the, the, these new risks that are coming online and also uh, understanding a little bit more about how do people perceive the risks related to water re reuse, water reclamation, um, and these new technologies such as desalination so on and so forth when it comes to water quality, quantity, and infrastructure. Sure, sure. Now, in terms of the, you were talking about the drinking water system. If we expand that and look at the whole kind of water cycle, um, mm -hmm. and and we look at one component, like the virtual water and how much water goes into, you know, food and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. What what are your, uh, what, what have you been studying along those lines in terms of, of you know, the, the water consumption required for food production and things like that? Sure. So last year, in, in the paper that was published, we asked people just to simply rank order four foods in terms of the amount of embodied water in the foods. And that's what you sort of refer to as virtual water. So all of the water that goes into production, um, uh, the processing, you know, sort of going from uh, start to finish. And what we found was that people really have, I mean, our participants really were not able to even correctly rank order these different foods. And to be honest, I don't think before the study I would have been able to rank order these different foods because what you know, I mean, you interact again with the final product and you have no idea what are the processes that went into making the final product. So for me, you know, what I found was that coffee, like actually making roasted coffee is a pretty water-intensive process. Um, and I did not realize that before doing, doing this project. And so are there ways to make this embodied water or virtual water more visible to people? And I think that that could also be a really interesting area of research in the future. Yeah, if there are so many so many products, and you know, I was listening to another water uh, related story recently, and they were talking about uh, it, it was had to do with clothing and the water you know footprint of clothing and and how it you know cotton garments and the dyes that go in it it's incredibly water intensive, and if people knew that, would it change their behavior? Would it would it re, you know cause them to purchase other fabrics or things like that? So I think you know that and the, the food production uh, issues are well, you actually right and you actually bring up a really good point and um, one of my mentors in fact um, is a professor at Columbia University her name is Alka Weber and she sort of um, one of in, during one of her talks she said you know for people for humans attention is one of the most scarcest resources <laughs> and so I'm not quite sure that if we were to give people all of this information about the entire life cycle of water that went into uh, Producing a particular good would be the best bet based on her, you know, based on her work. And so I'm a, I'm a little cautious about making that recommendation because you really have to sort of balance the amount of information with the way you motivate behavior change. And I think that that is also something we need to figure out. But you know, if and and, and actually, 
this is another place where sort of the energy and the water world meet. So in, in California, for example, a lot of people are working on the carbo, um, carbon labeling different products. But again, you know, we need to really understand, will people pay attention to this information? And how will they pay attention to this information when it comes to changing their consumer behavior? And I'm not quite sure. Well, that's very interesting. It would uh, because the the program I was listening to was talking about attempting to develop a a very simple label that you could put on clothing, and mm-hmm. you know would that would that little simple label be enough to influence behavior? You know, if people started to really understand it, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, so you, you indicated your hesitancy to recommend uh, that you know based on some of the research that you've seen what can you tell expand on that research i mean what um what would need to happen in order to to make to get consumers uh better educated and making better choices about you know the the goods they're purchasing based on on a, a water footprint or some sort of combined water energy carbon footprint Sure, and, and this is not my own work. So, so let me talk about the work of some other uh, great researchers in this field. So um, David Hardesty, who's a professor out of UBC in Canada, actually had this this wonderful paper that looked at um, how do you get individuals to really um, buy a carbon offset when they're purchasing an airline ticket. And what he looked at is, is varying the term a carbon tax with a carbon offset, which is basically exactly the same in the way he presented that information, but just changing the word actually causes very large differences in whether Democrats or Republicans are willing to purchase this carbon offset. So calling it a carbon offset is much better than calling it a carbon tax for Republicans, whereas it's, um, there's no difference for Democrats. Dana Gromit out of um, uh, Duke University actually did another study that was published in PNAS that looked at taking um, uh, efficient light bulbs and labeling them green, how does that lead to differences in purchasing behavior? And what she found is the green label really uh, turns off Republicans. And so I think that there is some more work that needs to be done to look at how how to present this information in a way that is both um, that appeals to multiple audiences and whether that information is really acted upon. So I think a simple, you know, a simple, um, simple graphic or a simple piece of information would be great, but you really have to sort of evaluate it among the among the sea of information that a consumer is being presented. But again, this is not my work, and it's um, something that we're not working on at the moment. Sure, it just sounds like a kind of look before you leap. Make sure you're you, you've got the uh, the best possible, you know, you know, product to roll out to make. Sh- to get customers into that education mode. Um, exactly, and, and that sort of begs another question. So, for example, if you knew how much water went into growing your avocado, would you not buy your avocado? I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of ask myself this question, right? <laughs> yeah, I like yeah. avocados. I mean, they, they taste amazing, you know? <laughs> so how, how do you – I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty hard decision to make, and so it really goes into making these trade-offs, and how do you get people to make these trade-offs, and should, you know? So am I going to stop eating avocados because I know about how, what the water footprint is? It's, it's a hard one. I think you're exactly right. You know, I've seen some things on like LinkedIn and Twitter about, you know, should we stop buying almonds and almond milk and, and all these things that are grown in California just because, because of the drought? And uh, you're right. It's a tough question, you know, because 
you, you like those things and they're being produced. So you might as well, might as well buy it. Right. So it's, yeah, a, it's again, a tough... I'm not sure. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, so there's, there's the, and, and there's another battle, right? So it's, it's, it's what I personally want to consume versus what's really good for the, the collective environment. And that's, that's a, and I think providing that information is one of the first steps that we need, but it's one of many steps that we need in order to sort of um, really target that much deeper, darker question. Yeah. And uh, if we can pivot a little bit and talk about your work in real-time water usage, have you, have you done anything there? I've not worked on real-time water usage, but I have done some uh, work on real-time electricity usage. Okay. And because there is somewhat of a parallel between that, what what uh, what are your perceptions, or what what's your work been in real time electric usage? Well, so we we actually did um, uh, a long term study in um, a building in Manhattan, and we looked at a particular type of feedback. And so the thing is, it's it's very hard to say really what's what's going to happen with with real-time feedback because it really depends on the type of information that you give people and also the type of technology that you're using. But that, make, that can make a world of difference. Because what some people have found is that if you, again, if you provide information in terms of um, health impacts, and this is Omar and Essio's work with Magali Delmas out of UCLA, they did a real-time metering project where they found that if you provide um, electricity, in, I mean, uh, if you provide consumption information in terms of health impacts, that makes a much larger difference in terms of electricity usage in comparison to providing monetary savings. From our own work in, um, in Manhattan, we found um, mixed results. So what we found was is that, you know, uh, we did a somewhat complex design where we did a, where we used a randomized control trial within a building, which was a mixed income building with low, medium, and high income. And what we found is that over time, electricity use did decrease but we could not clearly attribute it to the real-time feedback. Um, and so what we found was surprising is that people in our treatment group, both who accepted this technology and people who did not accept this technology, both groups changed and decreased their electricity use. So it's a little bit, it's still a little bit of a puzzle as to what's really going on and how people are going to interpret this information and also what the long-run behavioral persistence is when it comes to both electricity and water use. There are other groups such as um, Water Smart, for example, in California, they've uh, shown results where they are able to decrease water use by roughly 5% by providing social comparisons, like you know, how much are you um, consuming in comparison to your most efficient neighbor. And that has been shown to be effective, and that's actually based on Bob Cialdini's work, who's the um, the wonderful psychologist who's worked on how do you get people to reuse towels in their hotel rooms, and so providing you know social comparisons, providing comparisons that are very relevant to people, make a huge difference. Yeah, I, I, Peter Yalis was actually on the show um, uh, last year, so uh, it was great to speak with him and and learn a little more about that WaterSmart software. Uh, great. In in terms of real time pricing, what does what, can you extrapolate anything from from what you've done? I know you said the you weren't able to clearly contribute reduced electricity usage to real time electric electric electricity consumption information, but had, had, did anything in the results on your electric usage did it 
allow you to extrapolate or could it allow you to extrapolate anything on kind of real-time water usage? Unfortunately, no. Okay. There's still, I mean, and from my perspective, there's still a lot of work that remains to be done in that area. Okay. Uh, and one last substantive question, uh, gamification. Other folks have started asking about gamification, and is there anything uh, that we can do uh, to – you know, help educate people about water usage through gamification? It's a great question. So we recently got funding from the workshop of political theory and policy analysis at Indiana University to create a game to teach people about the water system. And so we are um, sort of uh, knee-deep and sort of creating this game with a, with a wonderful game programmer here and, uh, and other collaborators and basically what it's going to do is it's actually going to show you how water flows through this somewhat complicated system. And you're going to have to face scenarios, different scenarios that look at water contamination, um, uh, problems with water quantity, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure breaking down, and how is it that people are going to solve these different problems. It's going to be much more simplified than the real world, of course. But we're actually experimentally trying to test whether gameplay really impacts um, people's perceptions of risk, uh, people's understanding of a very complex um, but very vital system. And so you have to stay tuned. We've just started creating the game as we speak. Terrific. Well, maybe when the game is done and you get some results, I'd love to talk to you again on that. Sounds um, great. My pleasure. <laughs> well, Shaz, you've been absolutely fantastic today walking us through a lot of these uh, issues about uh, behavior and psychology and how it relates to water consumption. Uh, where can folks go who would like to find out more about you and your research? Where can they go to find that information? Uh, so one of my students, Kelsey Hinton, created a wonderful website uh, for us and our lab. And you can access that at www.svattari.com. So that's S for sugar, Z for zebra, atari.com. And um, information about our current projects, our papers, our data, in case you wanted to sort of look at some of the uh, results, they're all posted there. Fantastic. Well, Shaz, thanks again so much. You've been wonderful, and I hope to speak with you soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much for your interest. You betcha. Bye, Shaz. All right. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Shaz Atari. She was tremendous, and I really thought... Uh, she gave us a lot to think about in terms of how we view our relationship with and use of water. Um, a couple of takeaways. First is the issue Shaz reinforced early on in the interview, and that is that our research into the psychology of water use and conservation really lags behind research into other areas of resource use, specifically energy. And to highlight this point, she noted uh, that a lot of the baseline research is founded on a 1999 study uh, by Peter Mayer, uh, you know, a lot has changed in 16 years, including a massive Western drought uh, that's gone on. And it's a good thing that Shaz is studying these issues and advancing the research, because in my opinion, we're going to need to better understand water psychology and resource use as these issues will only continue to gain in prominence. So kudos, Shaz, to you for really advancing the ball on that issue. Uh, next, the notion of curtailment versus switching, I, I found profoundly interesting uh, recall that the research demonstrates that when people are asked what they can do to best conserve water, what choice what choice would they make, uh, they identify for themselves a curtailment action, such as taking a shorter shower. But when it comes to recommending 
conservation measures for others, people will identify efficiency actions such as installing high-efficiency appliances and low-flow uh, plumbing fixtures. So it's an interesting reality that people think others should expend funds to become more efficient, but for themselves, they recommend kind of the lowest cost option. And, and, and by that, I mean the lowest immediate economic impact uh, as their choice. And it just reminds me that people are programmed for their own economic self-interest. And unfortunately, I'd say we oftentimes view that economic self-interest through a myopic lens. Well, you can check the show notes out for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 65 Leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And please do me a favor. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes like Rosamarie56 did. Thank you again. Uh, Stitcher, TuneIn, and any other podcast directory on which you listen to the podcast. That's a great way for people to find out about it. Uh, also, please sign up for the Water Values newsletter. And again, Please take that listener survey, which can be found on thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.